0: Chapter the Seventh of A Modern Utopia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Taylor. A Modern Utopia by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Seventh A Few Utopian Impressions. Section one But now we're in a better position to describe the houses and ways of the Utopian townships about the Lake of Lucerne, and to glance a little more nearly at the people who pass. You figure us as curiously settled down in Utopia, as working for a low wage at wood carving, until the authorities at the Central Registry in Paris can solve the perplexing problem we have set them. We stay in an inn looking out upon the lake, and go to and fro for our five hours work a day with the curious effect of having been born utopians. The rest of our time is our own. Our inn is one of those inns and lodging houses which have a minimum tariff, inns which are partly regulated, and in the default a private enterprise, maintained and controlled by the world state throughout the entire world. It is one of several such establishments in Lucerne. It possesses many hundreds of practically self-cleaning little bedrooms, equipped very much after the fashion of the rooms we occupied in the similar but much smaller inn in Hospenthal, differing only a little in the decoration. There is the same dressing-room recess with its bath, the same graceful proportion in the succinct simplicity of its furniture. This particular inn is a quadrangle after the fashion of an Oxford college. It is perhaps forty feet high, and with about five stories of bedrooms above its lower apartments. The windows of the rooms look either outward or inward to the quadrangle, and the doors give upon artificially lit passages, with staircases passing up and down. These passages are carpeted with a sort of cork carpet, but are otherwise bare. The lower story is occupied by the equivalent of a London club, kitchens and other offices, dining room, writing room, smoking and assembly rooms, a barber's shop, and a library. A colonnade with seats runs about the quadrangle, and in the middle is a grass plot. In the center of this is a bronze figure, a sleeping child reposes above a little basin and fountain in which water-lilies are growing the place has been designed by an architect happily free of the hampering traditions of greek temple building and of roman and italian palaces it is simple unaffected gracious the material is some artificial stone with a dull surface and something of the tint of yellow ivory the color is a little irregular And the partial confession of girders and pillars breaks this front of tender color with lines and mouldings of greenish gray that blend with the tones of the leaden gutters and rain pipes from the light red roof. At one point only does any explicit effort toward artistic effect appear, and that is in the great arched gateway opposite my window. Two or three abundant yellow roses climb over the face of the building, and when I look out of my window in the early morning, for the usual utopian working day commences within an hour of sunrise i see pilatus above the outlook rosy in the morning sky this quadrigal type of building is the prevalent element in utopian lucerne and one may go from end to end of the town along corridors and covered colonnades without emerging by a gateway into the open roads at all small shops are found in these colonnades but the larger stores are usually housed in buildings specially adapted to their needs the majority of the residential edifices are far finer and more substantial than our own modest shelter though we gather from such chance glimpses as we get of their arrangements that the labor-saving ideal runs through every grade of this servantless world and what we should consider a complete house in earthly england is hardly known here the autonomy of the household has been reduced far below terrestrial conditions by hotels and clubs and all sorts of cooperative expedients People who do not live in hotels seem usually to live in clubs. The fairly prosperous Utopian belongs, in most cases, to one or two residential clubs of congenial men and women. These clubs usually possess, in addition to furnished bedrooms, more or less elaborate suites of apartments, and if a man prefers it, one of these latter can be taken and furnished according to his personal taste. A pleasant boudoir, a private library and study, a private garden plot, are among the commonest of such luxuries devices to secure roof-gardens loggias verandas and such like open-air privacies to the more sumptuous of these apartments gives interest and variety to utopian architecture there are sometimes little cooking-corners in these flats as one would call them on earth but the ordinary utopian would no more think of a special private kitchen for his dinners than he would think of a private flour-mill or dairy farm Business, private work, and professional practice go on sometimes in the house apartments, but often in special offices in the great warren of the business quarter. A common garden, an infant school, playrooms, and a playing garden for children are universal features of the club quadrangles. Two or three main roads with their tramways, their cyclists' paths, and swift traffic paths will converge on the urban center where the public offices will stand in a group close to the two or three theatres and the larger shops, and hither, too, in the case of Lucerne, the head of the swift railway to Paris and England and Scotland, and to the Rhineland and Germany will run, and as one walks out from the town centre, one will come to that mingling of homesteads and open country, which will be the common condition of all the more habitable parts of the globe. Here and there, no doubt, will stand quite solitary homesteads, homesteads that will nevertheless be lit and warmed by cables from the central force station that will share the common water supply will have their perfected telephonic connection with the rest of the world with doctor shop and so forth and may even have a pneumatic tube for books and small parcels to the nearest post office but the solitary homestead as a permanent residence will be something of a luxury the resort of rather wealthy garden lovers and most people with a bias for retirement will probably get as much residential solitude as they care for in the hire of a holiday chalet in a forest by remote lagoons or high up the mountainside. the solitary house may indeed prove to be very rare indeed in utopia the same forces the same facilitation of communications that will diffuse the towns will tend to little concentrations of the agricultural population over the countryside the field workers will probably take their food with them to their work during the day and for the convenience of an interesting dinner and of civilized intercourse after the working day is over they will most probably live in a college quadrangle with a common room and club i doubt if there will be any agricultural laborers drawing wages in utopia i am inclined to imagine farming done by tenant associations by little democratic unlimited liability companies working under elected managers and not paying a fixed rent, but a share of the produce to the state. Such companies could reconstruct annually to weed out indolent members. Footnote. Schemes for the cooperative association of producers will be found in Dr. Hertzka's free land. A minimum standard of efficiency in farming would be ensured by fixing a minimum beneath which the rent must not fall, and perhaps by inspection. The general laws respecting the standard of life would, of course, apply to such associations. This type of cooperation presents itself to me as socially the best arrangement for productive agriculture and horticulture. But such enterprises as stock breeding, seed farming, and the stocking and loan of agricultural implements are probably, and agricultural research and experiment certainly, best handled directly by large companies or the municipality or the state. But I should do little to investigate this question these are presented as quite incidental impressions you must suppose that for the most part our walks and observations keep us within the more urban quarters of lucerne from a number of beautifully printed placards at the street corners adorned with caricatures of considerable pungency we discover an odd little election is in progress this is the selection upon strictly democratic lines with a suffrage that includes every permanent resident in the lucerne ward over the age of fifteen of the ugliest local building the old little urban and local governing bodies we find have long since been superseded by great provincial municipalities for all the more serious administrative purposes but they still survive to discharge a number of curious minor functions and not the least among these is this sort of aesthetic ostracism every year every minor local governing body pulls down a building selected by local plebiscite and the greater government pays a slight compensation to the owner, and resumes possession of the land it occupies. The idea would strike us at first as simply whimsical, but in practice it appears to work as a cheap and practical device for the aesthetic education of builders, engineers, businessmen, opulent persons, and the general body of the public. But when we come to consider its application to our own world, we should perceive It was the most utopian thing we had so far encountered. Section 2 The factory that employs us is something very different from the ordinary earthly model. Our business is to finish making little wooden toys, bears, cattlemen, and the like, for children. The things are made in the rough by machinery, and then finished by hand because the work of unskilful but interested men, and it really is an extremely amusing employment, is found to give a personality and interest to these objects no machine can ever attain. We carvers, who are the riffraff of Utopia, work in a long shed together, nominally by time. We must keep at the job for the length of the spell, but we are expected to finish a certain number of toys for each spell of work the rules of the game as between employer and employed in this particular industry hang on the wall behind us they are drawn up by a conference of the common council of wages workers with the employers a common council which has resulted in utopia from the synthesis of the old trades unions and which has become a constitutional power but any man who has skill or humour is presently making his own bargain with our employer more or less above that datum line Our employer is a quiet, blue-eyed man with a humorous smile. He dresses wholly in an indigo blue that later we come to consider a sort of voluntary uniform for utopian artists. As he walks about the workshop, stopping to laugh at this production or praise that, one is reminded inevitably of an art school. Every now and then he carves a little himself or makes a sketch or departs to the machinery to order some change in the rough shapes it is turning out. Our work is by no means confined to animals. After a time I am told to specialize in a comical little Roman-nosed pony. But several of the better-paid carvers work up caricature images of eminent utopians. Over these our employer is most disposed to meditate, and from them he darts off most frequently to improve the type. It is high summer, and our shed lies open at either end. On one hand is a steep mountainside, down which there comes, now bridging a chasm, now a mere straight groove across a meadow, now hidden among green branches, the water-slide that brings our trees from the purple forest overhead. Above us, but nearly hidden, hums the machine-shed, but we see a corner of the tank into which, with a mighty splash, the pine-trees are delivered, every now and then bringing with him a gust of resinous smell a white-clad machinist will come in with a basketful of crude, unwrought little images, and will turn them out upon the table from which we carvers select them. Whenever I think of Utopia, that faint and fluctuating smell of resin returns to me. And whenever I smell resin, comes the memory of the open end of the shed looking out upon the lake, the blue-green lake, the boats mirrored in the water, and far and high beyond floats the atmospheric fairyland of the mountains of Glarus, twenty miles away. The secession of the second and last spell of work comes about midday, and then we walk home, through this beautiful intricacy of a town, to our cheap hotel beside the lake. We should go our way with a curious contentment. For all that we were earning scarcely more than the minimum wage. We should have, of course... Our uneasiness about the final decisions of that universal eye which is turned upon us, we should have those ridiculous sham numbers on our consciences. But that general restlessness, that brooding stress that pursues the weekly worker on earth, that aching anxiety that drives him so often to stupid betting, stupid drinking, and violent and mean offences will have vanished out of mortal experience section three i should find myself contrasting my position with my preconceptions about a utopian visit i had always imagined myself standing outside the general machinery of the state in the distinguished visitors gallery as it were and getting the new world in a series of comprehensive perspective views but this utopia for all the sweeping floats of generalization i do my best to maintain is swallowing me up I find myself going between my work and the room in which I sleep, and the place in which I dine, very much as I went to and fro in that real world into which I fell five and forty years ago. I find about me mountains and horizons that limit my view. Institutions that vanish, also without an explanation beyond the limit of sight, and a great complexity of things I do not understand, and about which, to tell the truth, I do not formulate acute curiosities. people very unrepresentative people people just as casual as people in the real world come into personal relations with us and little threads of private and immediate interest spin themselves rapidly into a thickening gray veil across the general view i lose the comprehensive interrogation of my first arrival i find myself interested in the grain of wood i work in birds among the tree branches in little irrelevant things and it is only now and then that i get fairly back to the mood that takes all utopia for its picture we spend our first surplus of utopian money in the reorganization of our wardrobes upon more utopian lines we develop acquaintance with several of our fellow-workers and of those who share our table at the inn. we pass insensibly into acquaintanceships and the beginning of friendships the world utopia i say seems for a time to be swallowing me up at the thought of detail it looms too big for me the question of government of its sustaining ideas of race and the wider future hang like the arch of the sky over these daily incidents very great indeed but very remote these people about me are everyday people people not so very far from the minimum wage accustomed much as the everyday people of earth are accustomed to take their world as they find it Such inquiries as I attempt are pretty obviously a bore to them. Pass outside their range as completely as utopian speculation on earth, outranges a stevedore, or a member of parliament, or a working plumber. Even the little things of daily life interest them in a different way. So I get on with my facts and reasoning rather slowly. I find myself looking among the pleasant multitudes of the streets for types that promise congenial conversation my sense of loneliness is increased during this interlude by the better social success of the botanist i find him presently falling into conversation with two women who are accustomed to sit at a table near our own they wear the loose colored robes of soft material that are the usual wear of common adult utopian women they are both dark and sallow and they affect amber and crimson in their garments their faces strike me as a little unintelligent and there is a faint touch of middle-aged coquetry in their bearing that i do not like yet on earth we should consider them women of exceptional refinement but the botanist evidently sees in this direction scope for the feelings that have wilted a little under my inattention and he begins that petty intercourse of a word of a slight civility of vague inquiries and comparisons that leads at last to associations and competences such superficial confidences, that is to say, as he finds satisfactory. This throws me back upon my private observations. The general effect of a utopian population is vigor. Everyone one meets seems not only to be in good health but in training. One rarely meets fat people, bald people, or bent or gray. People who would be obese or bent and obviously aged on earth are here in good repair and as a consequence the whole effect of a crowd is livelier and more invigorating than on earth the dress is varied and graceful that of the women reminds one most of the italian fifteenth century they have an abundance of soft and beautifully coloured stuffs and the clothes even of the poorest fit admirably their hair is very simply but very carefully and beautifully dressed and except in very sunny weather they do not wear hats or bonnets there is little difference in deportment between one class and another they are all graceful and bear themselves with quiet dignity and among a group of them a european woman of fashion in her lace and feathers her hat and metal ornaments her mixed accumulation of trimmings would look like a barbarian tricked out with the miscellaneous plunder of a museum boys and girls wear much the same sort of costume brown leather shoes then a sort of combination of hose and close-fitting trousers that reach from the toe to waist and over this a beltless jacket fitting very well or a belted tunic many slender women wear the same sort of costume we should see them in it very often in such a place as lucerne as they returned from expeditions in the mountains the older men would wear long robes very frequently but the greater proportion of the men would go in variations of much the same costume as the children there would certainly be hooded cloaks and umbrellas for rainy weather high boots for mud and snow and cloaks and coats and furry robes for the winter there would be no doubt a freer use of colour than terrestrial europe sees in these days but the costume of the women at least would be soberer and more practical and in harmony with our discussion in the previous chapter Less differentiated from the men's, but these, of course, are generalizations. These are the mere translation of the social facts we have hypotheticated into a language of costume. There will be a great variety of costume and no compulsions. The doubles of people who are naturally foppish on earth will be foppish in utopia, and people who have no natural taste on earth will have inartistic equivalents. Everyone will not be quiet in tone or harmonious, or beautiful. Occasionally, as I go through the streets to my work, I shall turn round to glance again at some robe, shot with gold embroidery, some slashing of the sleeves, some eccentricity of cut, or some discord or untidiness. But these will be but transient flashes in a general flow of harmonious graciousness. Dress will have scarcely any of that effect of disorderly conflict of self-assertion, qualified by the fear of ridicule that it has in the crudely competitive civilizations of earth. I shall have the seeker's attitude of mind during those few days at Lucerne. I shall become a student of faces. I shall be, as it were, looking for someone. I shall see heavy faces, dull faces, faces with an uncongenial animation, alien faces, and among these some with an immediate quality of appeal, I should see desirable men approaching me, and I should think, now, if I were to speak to you, many of these latter, I should note, wore the same clothing as the man who spoke to us at Wasson, I should begin to think of it as a sort of uniform. Then I should see grave-faced girls, girls of that budding age when their bearing becomes delusively wise and the old deception of my youth will recur to me could you and i but talk together i should think women will pass me lightly women with open and inviting faces but they will not attract me and there will come beautiful women women with that touch of claustral preoccupation which forbids the thought of any near approach they are private and secret and i may not enter i know into their thoughts I go as often as I can to the seat by the end of the old Capabroche, and watch the people passing over. I shall find a quality of dissatisfaction throughout all these days. I shall come to see this period more and more distinctly as a pause, as a waiting interlude, and the idea of an encounter with my double, which came at me at first if it were a witticism, as something verbal and surprising begins to take substance. The idea grows in my mind that, after all this is the someone I am seeking, this utopian self of mine. I had at first an idea of a grotesque encounter, as of something happening in a looking-glass, but presently it dawns on me that my utopian self must be a very different person from me. His training will be different, his mental content different, but between us there will be a strange link of essential identity, a sympathy an understanding i find the thing rising suddenly to a preponderance in my mind i find the interest of details dwindling to the vanishing point that i have come to utopia is the lesser thing now the greater is that i have come to meet myself i spend hours trying to imagine the encounter inventing little dialogues I go alone to the Bureau to find if any news has come to hand from the great index in Paris, but I am told to wait another twenty four hours. I cease absolutely to be interested in anything else, except so far as it leads towards intercourse with this being who is to be at once so strangely alien and so totally mine. End of chapter seven, sections one through three.